Hey, good evening, and uh, welcome back. Following in the manuals, um, we're on 21. I don't know if you've ever had this experience where you, you walk into a clothes shop, um, I've had this experience, and, you, and you're looking at the, the clothes, you're looking at the jumpers or whatever it is, and it's one of these clothes shops you've not been into before. And you suddenly, your eye catches a jumper or something that you think, oh, that, that looks good, that's, that's my colour. And you go running up and you try it on and it fits perfectly. And you think, oh, great, great. And then the assistant comes over and he says to you, oh, that's a new design, looks really good on you, sir. Um, so you ask him how much it costs. And you're expecting maybe £30 at the tops, you know. And he comes out with one of these prices, which is absolutely astronomical. You know, it's about five times what you expected. And uh, all of a sudden, it's not quite the right colour for you. And uh, you, you keep a, quite a straight face and you say, is it, oh, is that all? Is that all? Um, and you make a very weak excuse. You pretend to look at some other things in the shop and then get out as quickly as possible. And whatever reasons we come up with, the truth is it's the cost that has put us off. And uh, it's the same with the Christian faith. I think uh, a lot of us have arguments and questions that keep Christianity at arm's length, if you like. But at the end of the day, the real issue, the real issue for most of us is the cost of it. It's a moral issue. It's about what it's going to cost us, the moral implications, the barrier of the will, if you like. We don't want to be changed. We don't want to be different from what we are. And what's being offered with Christianity may be very good, but the cost appears to us to be too high. And in order to discover something new, often we have to let go of the old which, again, we, we find very, very hard to do. I remember watching a film. It was one of these um, wartime films. And it was based up, it was about a battleship, you know, and all its adventures and everything. And eventually this battleship is hit badly by a missile. And it goes up in flames. And everybody, the whole crew, have to jump overboard into the sea. And they're all panicking and they're all swimming for their lives and trying to find rafts and lifeboats and dinghies and any bit of wood that's around to hang on to. It's in the middle of the night, so it's all pitch black except for the, the fire on the, on the ship. And then it, the film zooms in on one particular boat, one of the dinghies, and it's absolutely crammed with people with injuries and burns and all the rest of it. And in the darkness of the night, they actually are getting some security from staying near to the battleship because the battleship has been their home. It's been the place where they've been kind of living, really, for the last number of years. And in the darkness and the vastness of the ocean, it's their only bit of light and it's their only bit of security. And so they're, they're kind of trying to stay as close to it as possible. But as the night wears on, they realize the, sh the ship is sinking and it's going down into the water. And the problem then is that uh, when the ship goes down, because of its size, it actually sucks everything else that's very close to it with it, you see. It's a bit like taking your plug out of the bath, you know, and all those little floaty bits kind of go down the plug hole. And so suddenly they've realized that they've got to get as far away from the ship as possible. So the very thing that's given them some sense of security, they've now got to get away from and abandon themselves, if you like, to the darkness and the vastness of the ocean in the hope that they'll get rescued because it's their only chance of survival. And at the end of the film they do, a liner comes along and they, they get rescued. But a lot of people feel exactly the same tension with Christianity. It's like leaving your old life Okay, where all your security is and all the familiar things are and taking hold and trusting yourself to something that's a slightly unknown, if you like, trusting themselves to God. But actually it's a false sense of security like the sinking <coughs> ship 
because ultimately it will pull us down and it ends in tragedy. But it must be said that there is nothing that you have to give up when you become a Christian that if you hold on to wouldn't ultimately or eventually destroy you. So while there's a sacrifice in becoming a Christian, the rewards are tremendous because God only ever wants the best for you and for me. And if you talk to somebody, say for example somebody's just got married, you ask them, you know, you're giving up so much, all your independence, all your freedom, all these sorts of things, certain times a day you've got to do this, this and this. Why, why are you giving it up? They, they don't feel they're giving it up because what they're gaining is so much better. Um, because they're in love with somebody, the cost of that almost becomes irrelevant to them. So what does it cost to become a Christian? That's what I want to look at tonight. And first of all, there's the perceived cost, the cost that we think there is. Before I was a Christian, I initially saw Christianity, and I'm sure I've said this before, that I thought if I was to become a Christian, I had to take my brain out for a start and not think anymore because I couldn't, couldn't quite tell the two. The other thing was I thought I had to become a boring member of society and certainly not able to enjoy life. So that for me was the perceived cost of becoming a Christian, and I, d I didn't want anything to do with that. But it's not the real cost, because that is not what Christianity is all about. I have false ideas about Christianity. And what I should have been doing was looking at the world around me, looking at creation, realizing that if God has made all this, if he's made the, the variety that you see in nature, the diversity that you see in nature, all the amazing um, things that you see when you look into the natural world, things like uh, uh, the beauty of it, um, the fantastic colors that you see around about, and actually how much enjoyment and variety there is in the world around me. And then realize that, that actually if that is God's work, then knowing him personally is going to be the most enriching thing and the most exciting thing that I could ever imagine. Now it's true that there are boundaries um, with God. God has set boundaries. But they're not, being, they're not there as restrictions that have been put there by a killjoy who wants to ruin people's lives. But they're actually more like sort of safety fences, if you like. Um, they're there to provide um, safety and enjoyment. Take a board game. Take your favorite board game okay, that you play. If you don't have the rules, you're not going to get the maximum amount of enjoyment out of that game. To enjoy a game properly, you need to know how to play. If it's a free-for-all, then you never enjoy the game. Or take a game of football. You need to play, you know, you're playing a game of football. You take away the rules. Take away the boundaries, there's no corner posts, there's no goal posts, there's no markings. The teams can wear whatever colour they want and they can change team whenever they want. There's not a referee, it doesn't matter what you do. You're not going to get the best out of the football players and you're not going to enjoy the game to its maximum because the, the boundaries or the rules, if you like, are there to get the best out of things and to provide safety. And so it is with God. God gives us rules and regulations, if you like, that are not repressive, but actually there to give life. And so there's a wrongly perceived cost um, in most of our minds. So what is the real cost? Because the real cost, we have to weigh up. We have to look at that and say, am I, when I see that, am I willing to make a decision? We're not going to do that until we know what it is that it's going to cost us, if you like. And the best way to describe the struggle that goes in inside every one of us at one stage or another is to look at a couple of stories that Jesus himself told. And uh, the first one of those, if you're on your Bible, is on page 1048. <clears throat> I'll read it anyway, so you, if you don't need to turn to it, but it's page 1048. 
It's Luke chapter 14 and verse 16. So if you've got a hardback Bible, it's on that page. I don't know if it is on the softback. Page 1048, Luke chapter 14 and verse 16. And I think it's headed the, the parable of the banquet. And Jesus said this. He said, A certain man was preparing a great banquet, and he invited many guests. At the time of the banquet, he sent his servant to tell those who had been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said, I've just bought a field, and I must go and see it. Please excuse me. Another said, I've just bought five yoke of oxen, and I'm on my way to try them out. Please excuse me. Still another said, Oh, I've just got married, so I can't come. And the servant came back and reported this to his master. Then the owner of the house became angry and ordered his servants, Go out quickly into the streets and the alleys of the town, and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. Sir, the servant said, what you ordered has been done, but still there is room. Then the master told his servant, go out to the roads and the country lanes and make them come in so that my house will be full. I tell you, not one of those men who were invited will get a taste of my banquet. And you'll notice a number of things immediately in that story. And the first thing that you notice is that there's an incredible, amazing offer made. Here's a man who puts on a banquet. He throws this great party, if you like, and he, and he thinks to himself, right, I want to share this with people. I want to bring some friends along who can share my company, who can have lots of food. We can have a good time together. It's all free. I'm paying for it. It'll be a lot of fun. It'll be very enjoyable. A banquet. And that's really a picture of what the Christian life is meant to be about. So why does Jesus choose this illustration? Why does he choose the illustration of a banquet? And, uh, and all the other things. Well, first of all, I believe it's because it's about relationship. Here's this guy who wants people to come and enjoy his company, okay, to spend time with him. And Christianity is about a relationship, about coming to know God. People coming to enjoy him now, but also forever. It's about knowing him. It's not about knowing a boring religious figure, but it's about knowing a vital and alive and vibrant creator God. And uh, an exciting God. And you only have to look at the life of Jesus to realize how, ex how much of an adventure that really was. So first, it's about a relationship. Secondly, it's incredibly fulfilling. Jesus doesn't say, the kingdom of God is like a man who went to a funeral and said, you better come along as well. But he said, it was like a banquet. It was a lot of fun. And we're told that actually the first thing that happens when we go to heaven is there'll be a party, there'll be a banquet, there'll be a wedding feast. Um, it won't be a prayer meeting, it won't be a hymn practice, okay, but it'll be a banquet. And uh, that's, that's good, it's utterly fulfilling. And Jesus lived a life that was, that was like that. Thirdly, we realise that it's actually based on immense generosity. And the Christian message is an immensely generous offer to a world that's actually turned its back on God. Because the price that has been paid for this banquet, if you like, it's not... It's not loose change, but it's actually been paid for by, in blood, by the blood that Jesus shed when he died on the cross. What God has to offer us in forgiveness and relationship with him is paid with a very, very great cost to himself. It's an amazing offer. And also, it's by invitation. It says, the man says, it's all ready, it's all prepared, come and enjoy a relationship with me. 
here's the invitation, but I want you to reply to it. There's an RSVP at the bottom, if you like. We need to respond to it. We need to make a choice about it. And becoming a Christian is really responding to that invitation. Um, and if we don't reply to it, then we don't go. It needs a positive, active response from you and I to, to, um, to the invitation to get into the banquet. So that's the first part, is that there's an amazing offer. On one hand, we have this amazing offer, but then we have this tragic response. And Jesus um, kind of points out three main areas, really, that hold back these people from coming to the banquet. There's these three characters. And they're actually very similar things to what hold people back from becoming Christians. The third one that's mentioned, I've got the order wrong here, but the third one that's mentioned, the guy says, I've just got married. I can't come. I've just got married. And that's, that's about relationships. It's about our relationships being more important to us than, uh, than God. Because you and I, we're made for relationships. It's a human need. They give us so much. We're intensely relational creatures. We need one another. We flourish when we are loved, when we're accepted, and when we're encouraged and affirmed. And we shrivel when we're rejected and when we experience loneliness. It doesn't help us as people. But the need for relationship is never fully satisfied in human companionship or even a sexual relationship alone. People that, that go into relationships without God, if you like, um, are, 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 get, are there to get things rather than purely to give things. And so they end up sucking each other dry and draining one another in that situation. It may be that, uh, and, and very often relationships are what hold people back from coming to God because they don't believe that God has a better alternative than what they currently have. It may be that relationships are outside of God's guidelines that need to be given up. Or it may be behavior patterns within relationships that are unhelpful and wrong. Or it may be that we believe that our human relationships are all we need and that we don't need God um, alongside of that. So that's the first one, relationships. The second character says, I've just gone and bought a field, um, which is really about materialism. It's about owning things. It's about having things. And most of us probably know that it's a lie that we will be happier if we have more things. I mean, there are numerous stories of people who are rich, people who've had more and more, but actually at the end of the day, they've been unhappy and they've not been satisfied with life. Um, many people commit suicide even though they have so much as, as far as materialism goes. Materialism or money, it's also addictive. You get, you get some of it and you want more of it. You're never satisfied with it. Even the Romans had this motto. They staged to say that money is like seawater. The more you drink, the thirstier you become. Because there is in the human heart, there's an emptiness in each one of us that nothing transient or nothing short-lived can actually fill. Yet even though most of us know that, and know that the pleasure of material things don't actually last, the pull of it on us is so strong that we're afraid to let go of it. That's the second area that can hold us back. The third area he mentions is the area of work. This guy says he's just gone, oh, I've just gone and bought some cows, okay? He's of our oxen. He's a farmer, and this is his livelihood. And he's just bought the latest in cows or oxen, okay? <laughs> Whatever that was. That's his occupation. And many of us are very tightly attached to um, ambition, to career, to life's work, what we want to do in life. Um, there are things that you and I want to do 
And we think that becoming a Christian is going to divert us from, from that course, if you like. I might even have to become a, a missionary to Africa or something, you know, if I become a Christian. My, my whole life will, will, will change in some sort of fearful way. And so these are all areas that are important for us, our relationships, our possessions, and our jobs. But like I said before, we struggle to believe that actually God has a better alternative for each of these areas. That if we let God involved in these parts of our lives, that actually life will be far better. We really struggle to believe that. But the real issue, Jesus says, is that actually they all began to make excuses. They're not reasons, but they're excuses. For example, who would go and buy a field? He says, I've, I've just got to go and buy a field, but I've, I've got to look at it. I've just bought a field, but I need to go and look at it. You don't buy a field until you've seen it. You don't buy your cows until you've tried them out. Okay? These, these folks are making excuses. The truth is, they don't want to go to the banquet. That's the truth of the matter. They don't want his company. They don't want his charity. And they don't want to be at his party. And so they make excuses. And you know what it's like when somebody invites you to a party and you don't really want to go. You don't phone them up and say... Um, I'm sorry, but I don't like your friends, I don't like your food, and to be honest, I don't like you, so I'm not coming. Okay? We tend not to do that. What we do is we try and find an excuse. And we go, oh, my brother's been abroad for a couple of months, and well, he's just got back with a family, and we really do need to go and see him. Now, that might be true, but it's not the reason. It's just an excuse that we make. And often it's the same with us, um, with Christianity. And Jesus is saying here that these people turn down the amazing offer by making excuses. And if we turn down God's offer, we're basically saying, I don't want your amazing generosity. I actually want to live my own life completely independent of you, God. But that sounds selfish, and it also sounds a bit foolish. So what we do is we disguise it and we cloak it with um, more reasonable-sounding excuses. Okay, then. Is it too much to give up? Well, Jesus told another story and uh, he told a story about a man who was out in the field, digging in the field, and he finds some treasure. Right? And it's brilliant treasure. This is fantastic treasure he's found. But, he's, but so there's this law that basically says that it's, if you, whatever you find, it belongs to the person whose field it's in. So what he does is he thinks, right, what I'll do is I'll bury the treasure, okay, so they don't know about it. Then I'll go away, and he goes away, and he sells everything that he has so he can get enough money together to buy the field. And then once he's bought the field, he goes and digs the treasure because he knows that in the field is this incredible treasure. And Jesus told this story. And what was he saying? What was Jesus trying to say when he told that story? Well, first of all, he was saying that it cost the man everything that he had. And therefore, it will cost us everything we have if we want the unbelievable gift that God offers us. Secondly, he was saying that what he got in return, i.e. the treasure, was, far, was worth far more than everything that he had already, that he kind of scrambled together to pay for the field. So what he got was worth far more than everything that he already had. And thirdly, he doesn't go away grudgingly, but he says he went away with great joy and sold everything that he had because he'd come across something that was so precious and so valuable that it was worth it. So then, what does it cost to become a Christian? Because Jesus was talking about that as that is what it's like for, to find the kingdom of God or to become a Christian. So what actually does it cost us? What is this everything that it costs us? Well, first of all, 
It will cost you and me, cost us our sins. It will cost you your sins. It will cost you everything that you are doing that is contrary to, to what God wants you to do. Now, I want to be clear here. Christianity is not about self-improvement. It's not about trying to suddenly be better than you were. Okay, it's not about that. But it will cost you because God, when we want God to be involved in our lives, God will then want to change things in our lives. Um, but when we turn from the things that are wrong, he also gives us the power and the ability through his spirit to be able to live differently. It's something that he does to change us from within. So what we need to do is we need to turn from the things that are wrong, um, which is the Bible calls it repentance. We repent of our sins towards God. And this word repent has a number of aspects to it. It literally means to change your mind. Okay? So the things that have been wrong, we change our mind and we see them as wrong. Um, or to think again about things, particularly with reference to our past behavior. So it means to start thinking about things from God's point of view and to agree with his analysis that they're wrong and to accept his verdict that actually we're guilty and that we fall short of God's standard. And that starts off in very general aspects and that we become aware maybe that actually God is far better than we generally thought of him as. He's absolutely pure. He's absolutely holy. He's absolutely just. And also maybe that that actually we are worse than we initially thought we were when we start to compare ourselves with God. We start to change our mind about how we see things. And then that develops onto particular aspects, specific sins, plural, if you like, in our life. Specific things that are wrong rather than just general sin that we're aware of. Because Jesus came to save us from our sins. Um, and so that starts as an inward thing where we start to think differently and then it starts to affect us outwardly. Um, first of all, it affects us um, verbally um, so that we, we're, we're heard and also visibly so that it's seen. So it starts inside, our thinking becomes different about our actions and so then we start speaking differently about them because the mouth is like uh, the channel of communication of what is really in our hearts what is really inside us. And the Bible says that what you believe in your heart, you confess with your mouth. And confessing our sins to God has two great benefits. The first of those is it helps us to get specific about things that are wrong or have been wrong in our lives rather than being general and vague about them because we first have to identify those specific things that are wrong. And obviously that's difficult because that means swallowing our pride because we don't like to admit that we're wrong about particular things. But it's far better to do it voluntarily now than to one day to stand before God and have to do it involuntarily. Uh, somebody said this, what is uncovered by us now will be covered by God's mercy. But what remains, un what remains covered up by us now will one day be uncovered by God's judgment. And so therefore it's far better to deal with it here and now, if you like, in this life, rather than at the end. The second benefit is that it shows that we accept responsibility for our sins, and that we're now accountable to God, but also responsible for our own lives. And that opens up a channel for God's grace, God's undeserved um, favor to flow through our lives. 
And it's also worth noting that sometimes there are things, particularly uh, occultic or obsessional behavior that we've had, that it is, it is good to verbalize um, renunciation of. Um, I will no longer do that. I will no longer be involved in that, um, whatever it is. Basically, sorry enough to stop doing something. So we've got this thinking process of changing our mind, and then we start to speak differently. We start to confess it to God. And then the third dimension is really the, the actions that follow or the fruit of it that naturally follows what has been going on inside us. And that is the correction of past sins. John the Baptist said that words of repentance need to be followed by works of repentance. Uh, Paul preached that people should repent, turn to God, and prove their repentance by what they do. Now there's a story in, uh, in Luke chapter 19 where Jesus meets this guy called Zacchaeus. Now Zacchaeus is a, is a tax collector and he's very wealthy. And the reason he's very wealthy is he's diddling all the people. Okay? He's ripping them off left, right and center and make a tidy little fortune for himself. And so the people hate him. They don't really like him at all. But he has power and influence and all the rest of it. But one day Jesus says, Zacchaeus, I'm coming to your house for dinner. And Zacchaeus is over the moon because he, he, everybody else hates him. But Jesus actually shows him some, some love, if you like. So Jesus goes to his house. And through the course of the, of the evening or, what, or the day or the, the, whatever it is they're, they're eating together, Zacchaeus stands up and he says to Jesus this. He says, look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor. And if I've cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. So he promises to go straight. His thinking has changed. He's realized that what he's been doing is wrong. He then confesses it out. He says it to Jesus, this is wrong. And now he starts to correct what he's been doing, damage the, um, repair the damage that he's caused by actually doing something to undo what he's been doing. And Jesus says this. He says, today salvation has come to this house. Because as Jesus walked in, salvation walked in. And Zacchaeus realizes who Jesus is and, and um, goes through all those stages, if you like. And sometimes it involves stopping doing things. Okay? There are things that are wrong in our lives that we need to stop doing. Um, it may be that there are sources of temptation that we need to cut off from our lives. It may be wrong relationships, um, especially where there's extramarital or homosexual intercourse that are involved. And Paul says in, to the Corinthian church, he says, such were some of you, but a change has come about. Sometimes they're negative things, things we stop doing. Sometimes it's positive things. It's things that we start doing, like Zacchaeus, for example, who starts paying money back to people that he's cheated. And where our sins have damaged other people, we can sometimes help to repair that damage in some way. It may be a, a rumor that we've started that we need to contradict. It may be property that we need to return to the rightful owner. It may be apologies that need to be made. It may be broken relationships that need to be mended, either by us extending forgiveness or for us asking for forgiveness. It's not a case of being over-scrupulous, but it's about being re realistic and allowing God to put his finger on those specific things in your life, in your conscience, in your thoughts, as you allow. And he gives you the strength to, to move forward in them. But there may be sins in our lives which we don't think we could ever renounce. We don't think we've got the strength to. But we need to be willing to let them go 
as we cry to God for help because God will help us because he's involved in that whole process. You see, you can't rid yourself, and I can't rid myself, of, of our failings. If we could do that, then we wouldn't need Jesus. Okay? Jesus can rid us of them, but we have to let him. We need to let him in, um, not only as our saviour, but also, uh, if some people want Jesus as their saviour, but then vigorously hold on to the things that are wrong in their lives, rather than letting Jesus come and set us free from those, those things that have got such a hold on us. So that's the first thing, what it will cost us. It will cost us our sins to become a Christian. It will also cost us our selfishness. We're all pretty keen on our independence. Um, I want to be in control of my life. I want to do what I want to do. I don't want to change my behavior. I don't want to change my value system. And I don't want to change my priorities. But to follow Jesus is to surrender to him the rights, if you like, over our lives. It's, uh, it's not about us losing our personality. It's not about us losing our individuality. God has given us that because he made you, you. And he likes you. He wants you to be you. But he wants you to be free to be fully you. And in order to do that, we need to give over our will or submit our wills and our choices to God's ways. And then that will free us to be fully what we were meant to be. And that is me with my individuality, my personality, um, and all the rest of it. It's a bit like a car driver. You know, you've been driving your car. You own the car, you drive the car, and you go where you want, when you want, at whatever speed you want. And becoming a Christian is like saying, okay, I'm going to let Jesus drive the car. I'm going to put him in the driving seat. And, and trust that he will take me to even better places than I ever knew. And he will show me the way through life. But I'm going to let him now do the driving in my life. So it affects us in different ways. Um, it might be our money. Okay, this is my money. It's not actually my money as a Christian. It's, it's God's money. That, and I'm just a steward over what he's given to me. Um, God doesn't need my money because he's broke. Okay? That's, he's not got a problem with that. He actually wants me. He doesn't want my money. He wants me. But we're told that, the, that money is an, uh, the alternative God in this world. Um, because money gives you independence from God. If you've got lots of money, you can go and do whatever you want to do. And it gives you independence from God. Therefore, it's the alternative God, it tells us in the Bible. God allows his children to have money. He's a generous God. He's a provider. He promises to provide for all our needs. Um, but he requires an attitude that says that this actually belongs to God and I will use it wisely as a wise steward for what he wants me to do with it. And when you think about it, most of your decisions in life are made based on how much money you have. What you do and what you don't do is often based on how much money you have. Um, and God doesn't want us to live like that. He wants us to live based on what he wants us to do. And if he wants us to do something and we don't have the money, then he will provide so that we can do what he wants us to do. It's a whole new way of thinking because God is in control of our lives or um, uh, with us through life in that kind of way. It might cost you your job. Okay? Um, as a Christian, when you go to work, you no longer work for your boss, ultimately, but you work for God. You work as God wants you to work, which is hard and fair and honestly. And if you work for a company where dishonesty 
is the name of the game, where you're dishonest with clients, to suddenly to go into that job as a Christian and say, I refuse to do that because it's wrong, can put your job on the line. And that's a tough decision. It might cost you your life. There are many, many people who become Christians, even today, around the world, who lose their lives as a result. In fact, there are more, more people this century than all the other centuries put together have died simply for um, saying that they now follow Jesus Christ. There are people today who are in prison um, in some countries of the world for being Christians. And you might say, well, count me out of that one, Andy. I couldn't cope with that. But the truth is that nobody could. None of us feel like we could cope with that. But God promises to give us the strength for whatever situation you face as a result of standing for him. But ultimately, it's worth it, even with all of those costs. Because even in the most hideous situation, one day you will find a wonderful new life. And this life will pale um, completely into the background. So it will cost us our sins. It will cost us our selfishness. And it will cost us our secrecy. Jesus said that we are light, to be light in the darkness. Okay? And you don't hide a light under a bowl, but you, you shine the light so that it can be seen. Um, he said we're to be like salt. Um, in, you know, before they had fridges, they used to use salt to stop the meat going off. Um, and you know that it's there. He said that we're to be like a city on a hill. We're not hidden, but we're there for everybody to see. And it's good for us to nail our colours to the mast, okay? And, uh, but it's a cost. Um, but whoever heard of a soldier who was ashamed to wear the uniform? It, it makes a mockery of it. So in conclusion then, it is costly to come and follow Jesus. And we don't want to make any bones about that because that is reality. But it is more costly to say no to his call. If we hold on to the world's ways and our own ways rather than God's, then we will end up with a life ending ultimately of frustration and we also finish up with an eternity without God but of destruction. Jesus said, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and yet loses his soul? But on the other hand, if we let go of our ways, we let go of the world's ways and entrust our lives to God, then we will find an incredible well-being which thousands and millions of people around the world testify to the fact that it is worth it. And not only that, but a certainty of life beyond the grave. Jesus said, I have come that you may have life and have it in all its fullness. He also said, I am the resurrection and the life. Um, he who comes to me will, will never die. Okay, there'll be life beyond. It's an incredible offer. Um, a few years ago, well, it was a few years ago now, but I worked one summer um, with a, a girl from a, an Islamic country. And she'd become a Christian, and her uncle had become a Christian as a result of watching the Jesus video, which um, we've got copies of. And she'd seen that, and her uncle had seen that, and as a result of that, and ongoing thoughts and everything, became Christians. And such was the opposition to them and the threats of their life that they had to leave the country that they were living in, which I won't name, um, because of the threats on their lives. And yet, she was a remarkable girl. She had an incredible joy of what she'd found. 
And if you think about all those people who've been prepared to suffer for their Christian faith, you have to ask the question, why? And the only explanation is that they have received in exchange, what they've received in exchange was so real that it was easily worth the price that they've had to pay. Jesus said, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again, and then in his joy went and sold all he had, and he bought that field. Let's pray. Father, we want to thank you for the amazing offer that you offer, and the fact that you've paid for it all because of what Jesus endured on the cross. But as we look at uh, the costs from our own vantage point, we pray, Lord, that you would help us to see something of that treasure, and to see that, that actually what we have, and the cost to us, Lord, is absolutely nothing compared to what you offer. And only you can reveal that to each one of us, Lord. And I pray that you would, in Jesus' name. Amen.